Welcome to Rob's Reliability Project, a podcast for maintenance and reliability people to better themselves both at home and at work. Now let's get rolling. Welcome to Rob's Reliability Project. I'm Rob Kalvaroski. Thank you for listening to the show. And if you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe to Rob's Reliability Project on your favorite podcast platform, as well as share it with your colleagues. If you're looking for more content, check out or follow Rob's Reliability Project on LinkedIn and Facebook for some different types of content and check out robsreliability.com as well. If you're looking for a short daily audio tip, subscribe to Rob's Reliability Tip of the Day on your favorite podcast platform. As well, it's also available on Amazon Alexa as a flash briefing. So check that out. Finally, if there are any topics, guests you'd like to hear from, questions you want answered, or if you'd like to appear on the podcast, just send me an email to robsreliabilityproject at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Now let's get rolling. Hey guys, I'm back and we're talking reliability again. Today we have Adam McElhaney and Derek Valine from Uptake. Guys, how are you doing? Great. Doing good, Rob. Awesome. Last time Adam was on the show, we, we took a little preview and we got through what the basics are of machine learning and AI. And if you want to go back to that one, check out the episode. It's called Artificial Intelligence Primer with Adam McElhaney. And just so you know, Adam is the chief of machine learning and AI strategy at Uptake. So Derek is the Senior Manager of Reliability Engineering at Uptake. And Derek, since it's your first time on the show, do you want to give us a little background about you? Like, what's your career path look like? How did you get your start in reliability? Sure. Uh, I, I basically spent 36 years in power generation. I was in uh, pretty much all of that in nuclear power generation. Um, started off as a maintenance guy, maintenance electrician for 20, 22 years. I uh, spent the last 14 years of my career there in uh, in engineering, specifically around reliability and preventive maintenance programs uh, for the power plants. Um, left left the power generation industry, went to work for a company called Asset Performance Technologies, um, which was sub- subsequently acquired by Uptake uh, a little over a year ago. So been at Uptake uh, for a little over a year and. Um, really enjoying my time here. Awesome. And one thing you mentioned over email was that you've spent some time in the nuclear industry. So how was that? Uh, you know, it's really interesting. Um, you know, it's really just, it's really just power generation when it, when it comes down to it, there's some specific things, uh, that are special from a design standpoint, but, um, when you really get down to it, it's a power plant. It's got pumps, motors, valves, controls, um, and some of them maybe even not as sophisticated as what you might find in a, in a newer generation combined cycle plant. So, um, you know, maintenance is maintenance, reliability is reliability. Um, the one thing about the nuclear power industry, I think that was really beneficial is the industry itself understands it's going to fail or succeed together. So there's really not a competitiveness between, uh, the power plants. It's a really collaborative, um, effort, a lot of industry working groups. We share a ton of information. Um, we don't view each other as competitors or didn't view each other as competitors. We, 
you know, we were allies basically. So we, we supported each other and want to, want to see the whole industry succeed. No, that's, that's great to hear. And that's something that I think as a reliability in the reliability community, I think we're pretty good at, but specifically companies, at least where I've gone in my background, they've been a little bit tight on, on spreading data and sharing between customers. Yeah, I agree. So I guess before we dive into it today, and you know, obviously for everyone listening, um, what we want to talk about today is AI implementation, because for me, if we don't implement anything correctly, and we've talked about this numerous times on the show, we've done a fun exercise. We may have learned stuff, but we haven't actually delivered value to our site. So do you want to, do you guys want to give us just an introduction of some of the projects that you've worked on at Uptake? Yeah, definitely. So, you know, at Uptake, uh, we, we deliver in industrial AI solutions. So, you know, our, our bread and butter is really uh, making software called APM, Asset Performance Management Software. But kind of our core differentiator is, you know, we take all the, the signal and fault code data coming off this equipment. Uh, we then marry that with previous work order or maintenance data that the customer may have. And then we actually combine that additionally, again, with proprietary data from our asset strategy library uh, and other curated data sources like weather, soil conditions, et cetera, that, that we've obtained. Um, some of our highest kind of profile engagements are uh, we work with Berkshire Hathaway Energy on all their wind turbines. Uh, we work with the U.S. Army on the Bradley fighting vehicles. Uh, we recently announced a deal with Cadelco. It's a large Chilean mining company. So in this APM software that we make, uh, you know, it does all the typical functions that, that you would want to manage the, the life cycle of an asset. But then you also get these uh, streaming real-time alerts that are being generated based on the health of the machine. So my team, uh, like you said, I'm the chief of machine learning and AI strategy here at Uptake. Uh, we're the ones responsible for taking all that data and building those algorithms that are going to generate those alerts capturing the feedback from users and maintenance systems and whether those alerts were accurate. And then we plug in very, very closely with Derek's team. So Derek, you may want to talk about how your team works with us. Yeah, I think really the reliability engineering team here, we engage with the, the data scientists, the guys on Adam's team to really give some contextual data around the equipment and around just maintenance in general. But you know, a lot of sensor data, a lot of lot of individual tags coming in on a piece of equipment. You know, what are the problems that we're trying to solve with that information, and what 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 information is really important? What's it going to tell us? Um, Adam's guys are really really sharp. They can they can write some incredible algorithms. We provide the context of context around what's important to write those algorithms on. Yeah. So typical engagement for us will look like. You know, we'll start uh, with a customer and helping them understand their their problems. The customers come to us with business problems, right? So we really depend on Derek's team to help translate those customers' business problems into reliability problems and then help translate those reliability problems into a subset of those that we can tackle via AI strategies. Um, the reliability team here at Uptake is then really instrumental in helping us figure out what data we need to acquire from the customer and when 
Um, you know, we, we don't want to just go in and say, give us all your data because that would mean, you know, in some cases that would mean the customer doesn't see any value for, for maybe 12 months. Uh, so Derek's team can really help us figure out, okay, this is the data you should start looking at. And this is where I suspect there may be low hanging fruit, you know, things where there's high data availability, high criticality, high costs when it does fail, uh, but lower amount of complexity. I think, yeah. And to me, that's one of the key steps to just model building in general, right? Is like, what do you, what's the problem you're trying to solve and what's the data that you need to obviously to look at that problem? Like for me, I mean, once you said Cadelco and I, and I've, I kind of knew that you guys, uh, well, I saw that you posted it. Um, but mining is really interesting, right? So it's, it's kind of my bread and butter. And one of the things I found in mining was we were looking at telemetry data back in, I think it was 2012. And one of the things that came out of doing some some short work on that and trying to justify the full implementation was the the haul roads themselves are the one of the most important things at the mine. So we were we were soft uh, soft rock, I guess. So the 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 roads change all the time, and one of the most important pieces of equipment at the site is actually the grader, which makes the roads flat kind of makes sense when you th- when you think about it logically right like the roads are flatter so you can drive faster your equipment takes less damage because you're not going over bumps the driver themselves is it's a little bit safer for them so it's really interesting that that's the way that we're going as an industry yeah absolutely i mean you're definitely right too you know machine learning models are they only know the data that you don't that you give them right um so, you know, knowing no machine learning model will tell you, hey, you actually need to look at the haul roads. Unless you give the machine learning model that data, you really need the human to kind of guide the guide the algorithm and say, hey, these are the things that you should be looking at. And so that's one of the functions that Derek and the reliability department at Uptake help us with. So, Derek, do you want to just give us a an introduction to that process? Like, how do you go into a site and figure out where you should start? Well, a, a lot of what we do, um, we start with, obviously, the customer is going to come to us with a problem that they want to solve. But um, believe it or not, we, we get a lot of our insights just from work order information. If we can get good work, good quality work order information, we can then pinpoint um, maybe some pain points that the customer wasn't even aware of, you know, assets that maybe are, are they're spending more on than they should be, whether that be from... Uh, you know, spending that on preventive maintenance that's really providing no value um, in terms of reliability or um, assets that maybe are failing more often than than they should uh, and causing you, uh, you know, a financial impact that way. So um, really, that's one of the things is, is blending in uh, some financial um, analysis into the uh, on top of the reliability analysis to really figure out where should, where can you get the biggest bang for your buck? I mean, there's a, a ton of things you can go after in a power plant or a mine or any other industrial facility. But the bottom line is, you know, where can I have the largest impact in the shortest amount of time? And that's really kind of how, how we approach it. Yeah. And I, I mean, that's a great thing to start off with. And it's something that we've talked about before on the show with, with respect to root cause analysis, right, is you can have these big one-off failures, 
but those might not be the ones that you need to go after. It may be those chronic problems that you have all the time. And for example, again, back to mining is we used to have these electric shovels that scoop the dirt into the haul trucks and they were having these small down outages that were due to electrical issues. And it would take the truck down for, it was, it was anywhere between 30 seconds to two minutes, but it was happening all the time. And those actually, if you cumulatively put those over a year's worth of time, they were worth way more than these engine changes or something like that, where it was taking down a truck for, you know, for three days or a week. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, if you look at it, you know, you can have a component or an asset that when it fails, it's a very significant failure, you know, financially. Um, but But if that failure is very rare, if you look at that on an annual basis, the, the cost of that failure is actually, could be actually relatively low, you know, annualized versus the, the example, exact example you're talking about where if there's, you know, a lower impact components or a series of components, but you're having those failures constantly, um, they actually could, could have a higher financial impact and a, a higher impact on your business outcomes than that one big failure. I was going to say, just going back to what Derek said about kind of work order data as being at, being at the heart of this. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. Um, and in fact, too, you know, another kind of interesting area where our teams have collaborated is, you know, we've invested a lot of R&D resources in the data science department to developing uh, AI algorithms that can actually help uh, clean up work order data and standardize work order data um, across different sites or, or, or different uh parts of a company that, that may have different failure hierarchies or different failure sets of failure codes for, for mapping that data. That, that typically is a, a very high value exercise for both us and the customer. It, it's high value for us because then we get this kind of superset of um, higher quality data to leverage for our, our algorithms. And then it's you know very useful for the customer, just even that alone, because then they can kind of holistically do an apples to apples comparison of, of themselves versus the rest of their organization. Many of our customers have kind of grown through acquisition or, or just, you know, they, they manage their sites kind of independently. So it, it's fairly common situation where they will not even have like a common uh, work order tracking methodology across all parts of the organization. Now, is that done by natural language processing? Like, are you mining the comment section or where are you, how are you doing that? Yeah, exactly. So it's a combination of natural language processing plus traditional machine learning. So we can look at the the texts that are in the associated work orders. Uh, we can combine that with what parts were placed on a asset, um, what was the failure code, and then we can actually marry that back with the underlying signal data. So kind of the, the, the classic example that I always explain this is, you know, if we see a, a mining truck come in, and it has a healthy electrical system, but a bad oil system. But then, you know, we see they log the the failure code as an electrical failure. But in the comments, they write, you know, unit leaking oil, added more oil and changed the filter. We can say, hey, that, that doesn't make sense. We thought that this had a healthy electrical system. Also, the, the words that they wrote in the comments are not what we would expect to see for an electrical failure. Uh, we actually think that this is an oil-related uh, failure, and then that can get kicked back for subject matter review 
to either Derek's team or to our customer and say like, hey, Derek, we think that they mislabeled this one here and, and they can say, yep, or they can say, no, you're wrong. And then that, the algorithm will get will get better over time. Yeah, that that's a super valuable system to me. Like when I, when I worked in uh, mining, we had kind of two processes for logging failure information. The first one was the operator on the truck would put in kind of a broad code. So there was a system they could punch in. And the number one failure I would get on that, or the number one code, I guess, was unknown. And then obviously, like thinking about it logically, like if the truck fails, not most of the time, I don't think the operator will know the root cause of what happened. They may know that, oh, it was the engine because they got a dash alarm or something like that, but they're not going to know the root cause. And really tying that to the second one, which was the maintenance guy who actually fixed it, if they can put in that information, like I think that's super valuable. Yeah, absolutely. We see something very similar. I think we had a recent client where the number one failure mode was called like just unplanned downtime or something. It was just some general bucket like that, which obviously, you know, similar to unknown is not super helpful when you're trying to do a reliability analysis and improve. Yeah. And, and to me, like Derek, this is the key, right? It is I, to me, this is a, like a cultural thing and a people thing. Like, how do you feel about that? Yeah, I, I definitely feel it's a, you know, it's a cultural thing. And I think part of that is because there, we haven't had the tools to really kind of surface the value of taking the time to really code things correctly and, and, uh, and do that in the past, right? It was, there was really no consequences for just saying it's an unknown failure or it's an engine problem or, or whatever. Where now, with the data and the way we can work with the data and visualize the data, it makes perfect sense to have that as granular as you can get it. So, uh, you know, we see the same thing in the, that you were just talking about. And when we do that financial analysis, we see large buckets. Sometimes the largest bucket of cost is in a, at a, a very high level, a system level or, or, you know, some common tag where if we can clean that data up and we can realize, wow, this part of that was really on your pumps. This was on motors. This was on valves. Then we can do a much more accurate um, assessment and really help you solve the the problems that are really at hand. But I think like Derek said, there's like an important change management consideration there too. You know, like Derek said, if you, if you don't know what happens to that data when you code it in, if you're not seeing the benefit or feeling the pain of just coding it in as an unknown, then, you know, there's, just human nature is to just make that of, of secondary importance. And then I think by, by instituting some change management and helping think about how, you know, the organization can own that data set and feel accountable for it more globally. That is uh that is an important element for, for driving change within the organization. Oh, I a hundred percent. I mean, I've seen it all over the place is, it's the it's the standard process, right? It's the maintenance guys, they started put like they get the new CMMS, they they learn how to put in the data and for the first month or two they put in like great data and then they never hear anything about it, nobody ever does anything about it. They see the same failures over and over again and then they're, you know, they're always busy, they're trying they're running from work order to work order and then they stop putting it in and nothing happens. 
And even then they become disillusioned with the process because they complain about something, they put in work requests and nothing happens. And it's just, it's just human nature. And to me, this is like, that's reliability engineering. Like we need to be feeding back to our people, both the, the good things that they do, like, Hey, this data was super useful that you put in, you know, thanks for doing that. This is how we're using it. This is how we're going to solve your problem. And then also the, the negative side, I guess, where it's like, you didn't put in anything. Why was that, you know, can we get that better next time? Yeah, that's a great point. Definitely agree. And I think the thing is, you don't have to be perfect either with some of the machine learning that we can apply now. It's, it's a matter of continuous improvement, right? You don't have to be perfect to start with. The models will improve over time if you provide the right feedback. It's a great point. Now, what does that feedback process look like? Is it kind of like a thumbs up, thumbs down, or is there a like a component where the person writes in a comment? Yeah, it's a little bit different industry to industry, but... Typically what it looks like is um, a user of the APM software will, will see some alerts pop up and then they'll get as much contextual information about them as possible. You know, we'll try to explain, hey, this is why the algorithm's alerting, show some signal plots that kind of reinforce why the algorithm's alerting. And then the first step of the feedback process is the user can kind of yeah, like you said, give a thumbs up or a thumbs down. We call it a, uh, they either create a work order or they, they can choose to disregard it. Um, the, the next step of the feedback process is when it gets to the shop. Um, and this is when like a human's going to walk around and you know, physically look at that machine. If we think that there's a, a clogged fuel filter, you know, they can walk to the fuel filter and they can, they can take it out and they can kind of confirm or reject the suggestion that there's a clogged fuel filter, that typically gets entered into a, a CMMS. Uh, but then software like Uptakes will integrate with that CMMS and pull that data back out. So th- those are both like kind of like the, the best case scenarios. But then there's, there's actually like a lot that can go wrong. There, there's, there's like 120 different possible outcomes in our feedback process. So for example, let's say at that first step, somebody disregarded it, said, no, there's not a clogged fuel filter. But then like the next day, the machine failed and somebody diagnosed it with a clogged fuel filter. Well, then we know, okay, that initial disregard was wrong. It wasn't the actual underlying algorithm that was wrong. So we, we kind of map out all the possible outcomes in that feedback process. And then we can programmatically capture how many are falling into each bucket. And obviously what we want to see is that the software is catching all of the true positives, all of the true failures um, with a very low case of false positives or just generating noise on those machines. Yeah, because the false negatives, they they kill the, the program almost faster than just missing stuff, I think. Yeah, you're absolutely right. You know, this is something we'll, like Derek talked about, you know, we'll try to look at the economics of this, but typically the, the, the false negatives, you're right, are like orders of magnitude worse. Um, I think in I think in the railroad industry it's something like if the locomotive fails on the tracks it costs like one hundred and fifty thousand dollars, but if you accidentally send it to the shop it's like ten thousand dollars. So you actually really want to minimize those false negatives, even if that means there's a few more false positives. But that's a trade off we have to to do the do do that financial analysis to understand. So one question I want to ask you guys is let's like let, let's get into real world examples. So. 
Can you give us an example of a successful AI implementation? Like what was the problem that you were solving? What were some of the benefits and how did you achieve the success? Yeah, I think, you know, we were working, um, one example would be with a, uh, a large manufacturing plant, stamping press lines, relatively new stamping press lines. And they were having a lot of downtime issues. They actually had a, a pretty significant failure on one of, one of two lines. And, and really, I think the success came from, again, the contextual, you know, providing contextual data to go along with the, the data science models. Um, we were able to really, um, in working with the customer as well, really determine what the problems were we were trying to solve, get the right information into the hands of the data scientists, create the right models so that when we presented those back to the customer, they, they really had confidence that we solved the problem they were asking us to solve. You know, it's really easy to, to think that the, the data science and the machine learning are going to do everything for you. But the, the fact of the matter is when you're dealing with um, asset intensive industries or just complicated assets, there's always going to be a human aspect. There's always going to be somebody touching that machine, either either an operator or a maintenance guy putting a wrench on it. Um, and you, you have to have that, that context, the, the operational context in order to, to mean, we're, we're not just going to be able to rely on computers and machine learning as much as everybody would like to think that's what we're going to get to. I, I don't ever see that happen. Adam, how do you, do you ever think we can get there? Uh, no, I mean, definitely not. I mean, again, like, you know, the, the algorithms are only going to know what, what data they're fed. Um, so you, you, you definitely, at least for the foreseeable future, kind of need that, that subject matter expert to tell, tell the algorithms where to look and to, uh, to sanity check the output of those algorithms. The kind of canonical example of this is actually the development of, of chess playing software. So I'm not sure if I talked about this last time we talked, but for a long time, the, the best chess playing software was a combination of computer programs plus uh, an intermediate skilled chess player. Um, those could be much more sophisticated computer programs. That's changed now, but chess is a situation where you have perfect information. Like, you know where all the pieces are on the board. In asset-intensive industries, you don't have that, that board game kind of clearly laid out for you. So you, you really need the human kind of directing the algorithm and working symbiotically to, to, uh, to figure out where to look. Yeah, that's a great point. And I think that that's something that people, like we have a hard time, I guess, getting with is is the differences between sort of fixed information or like revealed information, perfect information and not, and like hidden information. Like I think a lot of the, some of the people that are coming into the reliability space, I suspect they come from a finance background where the game is not even really necessarily defined versus like some of the the other ones where we're coming from sort of an industrial or physics engineering based background where we kind of understand that there are some rules that the game plays. And I think that that difference to me, it's something that I've seen in the industry or I, I suspect, and I think it, it does make a big difference in how you approach the problem. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. So 
one thing I want to get to before we sign off here is we've talked about this on the show before with respect to AI and it's it's finding some benefits that weren't necessarily capturable before before. And the one thing was, or the example that was provided was that they could find or predict failures that were sort of unpredictable given regular predictive maintenance data. So have you guys seen any other quote unquote unexpected benefits with using AI? Yeah, we we recently had an interesting uh, kind of confirmed catch with one of our wind customers who who repowered over 500 turbines. And from a reliability standpoint, they appeared to be working fine. But, you know, our algorithms noticed from a productivity standpoint, they weren't really doing what they should be. They weren't really producing the, the power that we were expecting them to output. So, you know, our customer went back to the OEM with some information. And, and you know, the OEM, of course, said, no, no, everything's fine. But, you know, what? when they sat down and looked at the facts, the OEM, you know, did a little bit more digging. And it, as it turns out, they had uh, kind of miscalibrated the control system on on over 500 of these these turbines. And they were producing material materially less power output for a given amount of wind. And so that that's something, you know, that, that really kind of goes beyond just traditional reliability analysis. And you know, when you're looking across 500 assets like that, I think that kind of shows the power of a data-driven approach because, you know, a human's not going to be able to kind of look at the power output across all of these 500 different turbines and, and detect those types of subtle variations from the from the design curve across, across that many assets and that many signals. Yeah, that, that would, that'd be a hard job to do. <laughs> Um, but yeah, that's one thing, you know, I, I've been speaking to a couple other companies in the AI space. And one of the things they've mentioned was not that the, a lot of the gains are not necessarily on the predictive maintenance side. They're also on the production side. How do you see that shaking out? Yeah, that's where we're really having that in-house, uh, team of subject matter experts like Derek and, and the rest of his crew is, is really helpful, right? you know, figuring out where should we prioritize productivity versus reliability? Uh, and, you know, where do we think we can we can have that, find that low-hanging fruit, which is going to deliver value and quick wins for our customers? Derek, any thoughts on that? Well, I think actually we have some, uh, some algorithms that actually can combine uh, financial inputs um, with the maintenance strategies and, and actually recommend a financially optimal um, strategy in terms of you know what tasks should you perform at what frequency based on the cost to perform those tasks and the consequence of failure. And and when I think a consequence of failure, you know I think many people talk about think about that it strictly is in manpower and material um, to make a repair or a production loss associated with that failure. But when you think about it, you know you have you know, there's some value you're going to place on uh, a da damage to your reputation or maybe margin with your regulators. And we can take all that into account as well and and d determine 
or recommend a, a financially optimal strategy that, that you can then take and make sure it fits in with your processes and your, your business goals. Yeah, and that's something that I need to get better at, at least communicating. I come from the economics side and I just use the word cost, right? And and that's something where a lot of people think it's just either the financial cost, production loss, but you're right. Like it does include like safety, the cost of safety, like did you hurt somebody, um, environmental stuff, like that. That those actually, to be honest, are usually more important than the production cost itself. Yeah, exactly. That's a great point. Yeah, I tend to use the word cost also. I think you're right. Sometimes that's not. I mean it in a very broad economic context, but I think sometimes it's interpreted in the vernacular of just direct monetary costs from the first order. Uh, those economists. <laughs> so the, the last question I got for you guys is, you know, what are some of your top tips for implementation? So like we've talked a little bit about, you know, we need to have the human side and we need to have some sort of context with AI. Do you have any other tips that you got for us? Well, I, I would say, you know, don't try to go from A to Z in one step, you know, take some time and kind of understand where you are in terms of your, uh, your maturity level and your ability to actually implement, implement AI um, with the end goal that, yeah, maybe you want to be a fully digital company. You want to complete digital transformation, but, you know, maybe the first step is just getting your your maintenance in order um, and starting to build the the infrastructure to do the um, you know more advanced analytics or or maybe you're down that road already uh, somewhere and you can take a, take a larger leap. But I th- I think the the first thing for me is really just understanding where are you and where are you going to get the largest value in the shortest amount of time and then go from there. Yeah, no, I agree. And I think that that's one thing that I've talked about before is just having some foundational elements in place. Like you have to be able to execute maintenance. You need a decent planning and scheduling process. You probably need some good IT systems in place. Like all that stuff has to be in place before you can slap on the artificial intelligence on top of it. You know, I, I see it no different than, you know, a lot of things like like having an advanced predictive maintenance program. It's like if you can't plan and schedule, if you can't execute maintenance, like you'll just get 200 alarms a day and it's going to be crazy. Exactly. So, you know, first off, you know, thanks guys for joining me on the show again. And do you have anything to plug? Like, are you going to be at any conferences coming up? Should people follow you on LinkedIn? Um, anything like that? It definitely uh, follow uptake on LinkedIn, uh, follow myself on LinkedIn. Um, we're constantly posting, um, you know, informative blogs. Uh, we recently started a, a tech blog, which is separate from our, our main uptake blog. And that, that's really kind of by techies for techies. Um, you know, we really got to go into the, the nuts and bolts of, of some of the stuff that we do here. And I suspect that some of your listeners will, you know, actually appreciate that level of, of technical detail. Um, so that can be linked to just from our, our main blog at, at uptake.com. Awesome. Derek, any plugs? No, nah, nothing for me. I'm just uh, uh, not attending any conferences or speaking at any conferences, just here uh, really trying to support Adam's team and the rest of our team here at Uptake right now. 
Awesome. No, and uh, I, I definitely am going to ask you guys to come back on the show to to tell me more about Cadelco. That's, that's something I'm interested in. Yeah, absolutely. Just to update, Bob, the, the tech, uh, Rob, the tech blog is uh, medium.com slash uptake backslash uptake dash tech is uh, the uptake tech blog. Awesome. If you send me the link, I'll put it in the podcast notes. Sounds great. Perfect. So thanks guys for joining me today. That was awesome. Our pleasure. Appreciate it, Rob. I appreciate you guys coming on. And so everyone listening, I appreciate you guys listening so much.